Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to uh, talk about another question in the Catechism. And Lord, uh, we pray that you would help us to see more clearly and understand more deeply what it is that you've done for us in the cross. And uh, Lord, that we would live in light of that and, and uh, want to show you our love and gratitude by the very lives that we lead. And Lord, that we would want to become less and less like the first Adam and more and more like the second Adam, Lord, knowing that in, in the first Adam we found nothing but uh, condemnation, and in the second there is no condemnation. Lord, may we flee from temptation and, and all that comes with it and flee to the cross and to the arms of our Savior. In your holy name we pray. Amen. So we were talking about uh, the, I guess, the 29th question, how does the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? And the answer was, the Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us, and by it, the faith, uh, uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. And we sort of kicked down the road the question of the can containing the question of what is the effectual calling, which we are going to talk about this week. But before we do that, um, I tried to remember if we really got to the question of in this applying, are we active or are we passive? That is an important question when you get to this sort of doctrine. Is that sort of what you're talking to your mom about? Yeah, my mother was asking me, what is the difference between this Wesleyan church I'm attending and a Baptist church? And I said, probably not a lot, but if we wanted to delineate historically, that would be a big, be a big difference. Am I kind of executive producer of my salvation? Or am I someone going to the movie going, wow, that was amazing? Sub-question, do people who are coding, hospital setting, we'll go to, to Sam, ever grab the like defibrillator paddles and just hit themselves? Like, oh, clear. <laughs> nah, that doesn't happen. Uh, they are passive. Dead people never have to uh, remind themselves, take no heroic efforts, you know, do not resuscitate, because you can't resuscitate, you're dead. So, so the, the answer is that in that sense, certainly we are dead. Now we do, we are involved in that we exercise the faith that's given to us, and that we manifest the repentance that is granted to us. Certainly people aren't saved apart from their faith and repentance, but when it's time to assign glory, for who is behind all this, 0% goes to us and all of it goes to God. Because, again, you were lying there dead in your sins. It's a, we think about um, Ezekiel, the, the uh, picture in, in Ezekiel 37, right? We have field of bones and preach to the bones. He begins to preach. They begin to kind of come together and uh, turn into skeletons. Then the skeletons begin to be covered with, are you laughing at the movements I was doing? <laughs> Trying to walk like a skeleton, Coco. And then uh, the, the like tendons and sinews and muscles and everything all form. Think about how glad you should be that you aren't Ezekiel. This like he never slept again, for sure. Uh, then skin and everything formed, but they were all still dead. And then God says, preach uh, to spirit, and he begins to preach and life enters them, and they get up an army. And it's a picture of um, what happens at redemption, whether we're talking about the kind of uh, uh, type of Israel 
being raised again in a sense, or what it ultimately uh, is fulfilled with, which is us uh, being raised from death to life. And it's a picture of the old dead self being granted life. You doesn't matter how long you left that valley of bones. They were never going to like figure it out on account of they were bones. Uh, so this is something that uh, we have emphasized in the Baptist tradition historically coming out of uh, the English church, the, the Anglican tradition uh, via the Puritans, and that coming out of a reformed uh, understanding of, of salvation. In the uh, question on the question here, the, the catechism on the catechism, we read, what does the Spirit make use of in the application of redemption? And the answer given is the Spirit of God makes use of the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word for this end. Okay, and that is uh, actually question 87 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What does the Spirit make use of in the application of redemption? The Spirit of God makes use of the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word for this end. But even those are not effectual unless the Holy Spirit's power accompanies them. So we can preach the gospel to people, and we should, and we're commanded to, but the reading of the word, the preaching of the word, are still not going to raise the dead unless the Spirit accompanies them. Now, here's a, a question that, that goes along with whether we're active or passive, whether we are part, you know, co-author of our salvation, uh, co-finisher of our faith. The old union with the first Adam was dissolved, right? It is gone if you're in Christ. Is it possible then that in the same way, a similar way, your current union with the second Adam will also be dissolved and you will move on to something else or go back to the old Adam or find yourself once again lost and dead in your transgressions? No. Why not? Because um, Jesus died for our sins. We're, we're saved. We're, um, we can't go back to the old Adam. Well, even if we start um, sinning and doing all this stuff. But... Okay, yeah, I, I agree with you. But, it, but if it's possible that we broke up with the old Adam, and that was a very close uh, connection, it was a union that we had with him, why isn't it possible to break with, dissolve our union with the second Adam, Jesus Christ? Why is that one entirely why different? Why would I want to? I don't know. Why do people want to fall back into a life of sin? that something actually broke us from our connection with Adam, right? Paul says that nothing can break us from the love of Christ. Yeah. But there is no, there's no value, there's no rest. So I think that, I think that the love of Christ and the, and the Spirit's sealing of us is final and absolute. So yes, God is doing something there that Adam wasn't doing. So the connection to Adam is because of the frailty of human will. And that when that is broken, it's not by the will of man, John chapter 1, that we are now connected with Christ. It's by the will of God. 
And that is not frail and weak and easily broken like the will of man. Uh, I think uh, uh, maybe a more complete answer comes if we look at uh, Romans 7, 1 through 4. Can somebody find that quickly? I bet I can. Someone find it quicker than me? Quicker? I got it. Me too, but all right, let's hear it. One through what? Four? Four, yeah. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not adulterous. Likewise, my brothers, you, have, you also have died, into, died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So this is part of a huge argument, many, many tiered arguments that Paul is making throughout the book of Romans, that if you are under the law, you're condemned by the law, but the way that you were delivered from the law was old covenants cease to be enforced when one of the parties dies. And it's like, good news, you died. But in Romans 8, we read a very famous passage, Romans 8, 38, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So even your own death won't negate this covenant because the second death can't touch you. There is nothing that then can bring an end to the covenant that we are in right now, the covenant of, of redemption with, with Christ. So that is the reason why we are confident we can't... Oops, I lost my salvation. And that was an, the other of the big differences as I read through was a very solid uh, doctrinal statement from the church that, that uh, I was, I was uh, discussing with my parents that it, it said, uh, just in passing, those who are born with uh, mental deficiencies, uh, mental illnesses, uh, I think it might have even said retardation, which is a word we don't use much, um, uh, are secure and saved because of God's grace, as well as those who might become, uh, through injury or something, after they come to faith uh, mentally. Yeah, well, and, and, but what it implies there is those who continue to have their capacities mentally can lose their salvation, aren't as secure as a, a child that dies or something. And so in parsing all these things out, there was that implication. Uh, and as Baptists, we have historically always held to the notion that if life and death, angels and demons, nothing on earth or in heaven or nothing in the past, present or future could possibly break us from Jesus Christ, that we can't with our feeble little will. Um, it, it wasn't what brought us back to life, and it can't bring us back to death. Uh, there are other analogies of our very close, inseparable connection to Christ uh, in the New Testament. Colossians 1, a head and the members of the body. You don't casually separate from your head for a time and then go back. I mean, that's when that happens, that's, that's real bad news. Uh, a root and branches, <laughs> foundation and superstructure. So we're talking about John 15, 5, uh, 1 Peter 2, 5 and 6. 
All of these pointing to the idea that we are one with Christ in a way that isn't, it's not like Legos where you can pop them apart for a while. No, we are inseparably connected to our Savior. One of the missionaries in the East Indies being called to visit the deathbed of one of the native Christians inquired into the state of her mind. She replied, happy, happy. I have Christ here laying her hands on the Bible and Christ here pressing them to her heart and Christ there pointing upwards to heaven. Happy Christian to whatever part of the universe she might be removed. The Lord of the universe was with her and she was secure of a home. If you don't have security, oh, that's almost as bad a state as being lost. Because with Luther, I say, if I could lose my salvation, if I could drop it, if it were in my hands, I'd have, I mean, I told you how I got a new phone and within like 20 minutes, it was already broken. Yeah, I would, I would totally beat that record with my salvation. Thank God it's not in our hands. That's why we talk so much about the Spirit being the one who seals it to us. Uh, so the million-dollar question then, verse, or chapter 30, question 30. Uh, what is effectual calling? Uh, let's read this one together. Whoa. You guys are ready to go. I'm, I'm lagging behind. Sorry. Uh, I'll say it again. What is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. Back-to-back, double-header, old-timey sermon illustration. George Whitefield was preaching once at Exeter. Great name. Exeter. A man was present who had loaded his pockets with stones in order to throw them at the minister. He heard his prayer, however, with patience, but no sooner had he named his text than the man pulled a stone out of his pocket and held it in his hand, waiting for a fair opportunity to throw it. But God sent a word to his heart, and the stone dropped from his hand. After the sermon, he went to Whitefield and told him, Sir, I came to hear you this day with a view to break your head. But the Spirit of God, through your ministry, has given me a broken heart. The man proved to be a sound convert and lived an ornament to the gospel. So, what does the word effectual mean? Something that affects. Effects. So, uh, we need to suss out. I wish I had my whiteboard. One of my seven whiteboards. They're all in the hallway. Um, We need to... Suss out the difference between affect with an A, A F F E C T, and effect with an E, right? And some, this is a word, sometimes people mess this up when they're writing, just like there and there, and it's with an apostrophe and it's without. Uh, what is the difference between affect and effect? Effect means that you're um, causing something to happen. Which one are you saying? Affect. With an A. With an a. E, well, Something is acting upon you if, if it's affecting you with an A. Okay. Right? Effect as a verb means that you are causing a particular thing to happen. Okay. <laughs> what what use them both in a sentence to 
to make it clearer. Okay. Well, we rarely use effect as a verb, so that's going to be hard. How about this? Yeah, you use my sounds. The, the difference being that to effect is to create the effect. To affect is to have an influence upon it. So if, if you affect my mood, then either you're annoying me or you're making me laugh or you're making me sad. You probably like you're vaping and that makes me sad um, and makes me laugh at the same time. Uh, but if you effect my mood, it means you walk into the room and create an entirely new state of mind for me. Like when Sean walks into a room and I'm just like, all right, the party can begin. And I feel my spirits rising. The, and, and the effect, of course, usually used as a noun. The effect is the result. So if you affect with an A, you're contributing to that result. If you effect with an E, you are creating the result. Have I belabored the point enough? Kicked the dead horse enough? One more time. So the, the answer, the question here then becomes, does God affect our salvation by kind of influencing us? Does the Spirit affect our salvation by nudging us in the right direction? Or does God effect our salvation? When he calls us, is it like when I asked Sean, hey, are you coming tonight to our men's gathering? And he was like, no, I don't feel good. That's just an effect. Or does he call in a way that actually accomplishes our salvation? An unconditional call that creates in us repentance and faith. The effectual calling. It's the work of God's Spirit in which He convinces us of our sin and misery, enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renews our wills, and therefore persuades and enables us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. I have an example. Okay. So if a law is passed, it affects, effects, like you're, you're putting into effect the law, all of a sudden something that was legal is not legal or vice versa, let's say. But a lobbyist... Affects. Affects. Right. Good, good. So the lawmakers effect a law by passing it. A lobbyist affects the law by trying to influence it. That's the best one. Great. I feel like we did that together. Synergy. <laughs> so the notion of an effectual call is controversial. Is there a call of God that is just a broad, like, hey, everybody, come if you want. I don't care. Um, I mean, that's, I don't mean to paint a caricature or a, a straw man, or is it an effectual call? Those who are called by God, those who are elect, are therefore saved. I think there's both, because Jesus preached to lots of people who weren't mm -hmm. called in that way. Sure, but we're talking about the work of the Spirit oh, here. Okay. But you're right, yeah. So there, there is a, there has to be a call. In fact, Spurgeon is said to have one day said these words, and, and then people have challenged, maybe it wasn't uh, accurate, maybe it was someone later and applied to Spurgeon, but people asked him, why, if you believe in election, do you preach to everyone and not just the elect? And he said, well, if I knew who the elect were, that's what I'd do. I mean, I would, if, if elect people had a yellow stripe up their spine, I'd be lifting coattails, 
But instead, I don't know. Scripture says, preach to everyone, whoever will come. And so I preach to everyone, and it's God's business. Whoever will, and, and they come. We preach to everyone that Jesus died for sinners. And if you come to him, you will be saved. And we can preach that confidently, knowing it's true. And we don't have to try and reverse engineer how God's working in any given situation. But it is important that we recognize all of the work of salvation is in his hands. Because if you preach a half and half salvation, you do this and then God makes up the difference. You know, get as close to the finish line as you can and then God will come along and put your arm around his shoulders and hobble you the rest of the way. Then we've cheapened it. We've actually uh, stolen glory from God and given it to a sinner of all people. And you actually uh, kind of hobble your own sanctification because now, having been saved by the synergy of you and God together, you're going to want to live the rest of your Christian life on your strength and only relying on him when you run out rather than entirely leaning on Christ. All of those things are important. Uh, still, though, this is a secondary issue. There are people who would say, no, the, the call goes out to everyone with a little, like a sample size grace, and people can try it, and they're like, ooh, this feels nice, and they accept it, or some people are like, not for me, and then that's that. They go back to sleep or back to death or whatever, and therefore the call is completely broad, and the difference lay in the heart of the person. So if you're better, you will accept it, and if you're worse, you won't. But that sounds an awful lot like we're flirting with salvation by merit rather than salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Let, let me suggest that the scriptures give us hints to this, uh, even in an unlikely place. Uh, when God, in the first chapter of the whole Bible, Genesis 1, creates light, there is light. He says, this is good, right? And then he calls the darkness night. Night. night very good Aaron <laughs> see if you can get the follow up for an extra 500 points and then he called the light excellent yeah so he calls these things into existence his calling them this makes them so his speaking creates the reality he doesn't affect them he effects them right he doesn't affect the world. He effects it into existence with his own voice. Uh, Christ then being called the word, the logos, we don't want to get too one for one with this because there's also Greek philosophy and, and things involved perhaps in the, the choice of that word. But Christ being that very word of God to us. We want to remember when God calls something, he is not just affecting, he's effecting. So if we turn to 2 Timothy 1.9, we read, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling. 2 Peter 1.10, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Now, calling and election, sure. What's going on there with those two things there? Well, maybe parallelism, uh, maybe two terms describing mostly the same thing, or maybe... Uh, two separate things. It depends on how people have parsed all this out. We're not going to get caught in the weeds there. The point is, if God called you, then it's going to have an effect because he effects your salvation. So with fear and trembling, 
you work out your salvation, you diligently make it sure that you were called and that you are elect. And you're not earning your salvation, you're showing yourself, your fellow Christians, the unbelieving world, that there's been a great effect on you by uh, the, the work of God in you. Just like he calls the day uh, light day and the darkness night, he calls us holy. And by calling us holy, that's justification. By declaring us holy, that's reality now. We are holy. He doesn't call us to be holy and then it's all on us to get to that point. You'd never get there. You'd never get there. I know all of you well enough and I know myself well enough to know none of us would have, we'd hear the call, we'd go, all right, sounds good. We'd stretch, we'd get ready, and then we'd fall right on our face in the mud. That's just how it would work. But because his calling is an effectual calling, it creates the effect. It doesn't just affect us and inspire us. We can run the race. And when we fall in the mud, he picks us up, he washes us clean, effecting again our uh, holiness and sends us off again, puts a sword back in our hand and says, continue on. So that is a God I want to follow. The one who gives me a pep talk and says, all right, if you do well enough, then you can have a reward. If you do well enough by your own strength, if you can do what no one else before you has ever been able to do, not even Abraham or Moses or Adam who lived in a state of innocence, then you can be, I mean, what good is that? No thanks. I'd rather just enjoy my three score and 10, you know, with lots of fine cigars and collecting Palm Pilots. Um, any thoughts on, on this, the effectual call? And it does, it, it does kind of, Grit against, I think, where we sit as American evangelicals a lot of the time. People want to think about their having been kind of good enough to respond. People like that, that idea of us living in a meritocracy, um, which I don't think we do, but people like the idea of it, and that extends to the spiritual. You know, I'm going to share my testimony, and if the deciding factor is that one day I realized of myself, whoa, I need Jesus. And so I accepted him and that supercharged me and I made it the rest of the way. That glorifies me. If my story is one day I hit, you know, I, I did face plant in the mud and God opened my eyes when I had been blind. Remember when Jesus put mud in the guy's eyes and then told him to wash it away? God raised me from the death I was in he, he gave my lame limbs life and picked me up and washed me clean. Well, that gives glory not to me, but to him. And that's a very important distinction in uh, kind of two streams, uh, two tributaries of what we would call the Reformation, um, Protestant Christianity. Bo both are Christianity, but I think that uh, as Baptists, it's a great thing that we're beginning over the last 20 years or so at large to rediscover this effectual calling teaching and remember that it wasn't on my shoulders that I was saved. It's not on my shoulders that I'm going to get uh, holier. It's not going to be on my shoulders that on the last day I'm going to be glorified and brought into. It's all on the shoulders of Christ who died on the cross with my sin piled on his shoulders. 
So it's a work of God's Spirit. The Westminster Larger Catechism calls this the work of God's almighty power and grace. I don't know why they couldn't fit that into this one, because that's a great, it would have been a great uh, beginning. Effectual calling is a work of God's almighty power and grace, wherein His Spirit convinces us of our sin and misery, which is a huge favor the Spirit does for us. Uh, people who are mired in sin and miserable will, to the very end, claim, no, I'm happy, and I'm, I'm fine, I'm good. In fact, that's when I, have, I used to ask people just on the street, I thought this was the mark of being very zealous for the Lord. Can I tell you about Jesus? I mean, I don't have any problem with people who do that. I don't generally do that anymore. I try to have some kind of connection first. But I found 99 out of 100 people would tell me, no, I'm good. And trying to be clever, I would often say, no, you're not. And that's what I want to tell you about. But they were close to the idea. No, no, I'm good. If you ask them probing questions they would come to the conclusion themselves that they're not good. But the spirit has to open the eyes to the sin and misery in which the person is living. Does a fish know it's wet? Does a sinner know that they are mired in muck and mud and stuck at the bottom of the slimy pit to take some biblical imagery? No, that's all they've ever known. And so the Holy Spirit has to open their eyes to it. They have to see their, their pathetic state before they even want to be saved. A lot of preaching skips the sin part and goes right to trying to present some good news. And if you don't talk about sin, there's no reason that people need to be saved. And so it, it just doesn't work. It gets very shallow very quickly. God will be your better father than the father you had. Uh, God will help you be your best self. It very quickly turns into sounding either very therapeutic or like Tony Robbins life coach crap. If you don't start with, here is the miserable position in which you find yourself to begin with. But only the Spirit can truly convince the sinner that they are a sinner, that they are lost and guilty and corrupt. Uh, I mean, just watch prominent megachurch pastors on CNN getting interviewed trying to couch all their answers without offending, without really using the S word, and you see how empty that sort of uh, non-gospel is. Um, I'm going to skip the stuff about the three uses of the law. So to convince us of our sin and misery, let's, we'll just say that's one of the uses of the law, and God uses that to, to do it. So the first use of the law, civil use, don't, don't speed, don't kill your neighbor, kind of tamping down and, and uh, keeping our sin from going mad and burning out of control without changing the heart. Second use is to break your heart, show you how sinful you are, and shove you toward the cross. And then the third use of the law is for believers, how we want to live our lives according to God's will. So that second use is uh, what we're talking about here. So Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, convincing us of sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ. Someone look up Acts 26, 15 through 18. You should be right there if you were already at Romans. I've got it. Does someone else have it? Acts 26, 15 to 18. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, 
and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So this is Paul before Agrippa recounting his kind of uh, conversion experience on the road to Damascus, which we see the enlightening happening actually right in front of us, right? We see the, the scales fall away from his eyes, and he goes from being blind to being able to see. I mean, that's pretty easy to... It's, it's almost over-the-top uh, imagery. God didn't want us to miss that one in some nuance. Uh, and then in the words we, we read as well, I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. So he's saying, I'll be working in your ministry so that by the preaching of the word, the spirit will be at work enlightening, not only convincing people of sin and misery. You ever sit under that preaching? That's all it wants to do. Convince you of your sin and misery and then make you leave all sad. Uh, that's no good. Uh, further, enlightening our minds to the knowledge of Christ. Sadly, the world with one voice now paints people like us who follow Jesus as the ones in the darkness needing enlightenment. In fact, what we call the enlightenment historically is very much the opposite of that. It's, it's the in darkening. Uh, and we, you know, why, why is that, by the way, do you think? That the world thinks that, that those whose minds have been freed from the shackles of sin, whose, whose wills have been freed from the chains of our transgressions, whose eyes have been opened, are the people who need their minds opened and need to uh, be enlightened. Okay. Yeah, because otherwise they have to acknowledge the, the sin and min, uh, misery in which they're living. Because the cross is foolishness to those who are in the world? Absolutely, yeah. So there's no worldly wisdom in it. It seems stupid to them. It doesn't seem as sophisticated as uh, the very nuanced agendas that are uh, shoved down your throat in sitcoms and op-eds. I think those two things probably sum it up, right? It, it's, it's, a, it's a protective thing. It's, and there, there's a, a school of thought that says we have to be shrewder than, than them, shrewder than the world in the way that we bring our agenda against it. And I used to think that way. And we do need to be wise, as wise as serpent, as innocent as doves. But I think we don't have to worry about being shrewd in the way we present the gospel. Because you don't have to slip in past someone's defenses. If the Spirit is going to apply that gospel to that person's heart, it's going to happen. We need to just proclaim it boldly. That's what Paul said. In the opening of my mouth, pray that I will boldly proclaim the gospel boldly clearly that's what we ought to shoot for um and we want to be wise we want to be winsome we don't want to turn people off and make unnecessary obstacles but apart from that remember it's not up to you and your cleverness to bring somebody to faith it's simply up to the the working of the spirit when you proclaim the gospel so then there's the renewing of the will the westminster confession of faith says uh, renewing their wills, and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good. Determining them. Their wills. Yeah, it's old, old-timey old English. 
in renewing their wills and by his almighty power, determining them, realigning them, we might say, to that which is good. So a will that by the fall was broken and bent down towards self, back towards self-worship and self-gratification and looking inside of my own heart to see what to do and where to go. Now instead, realigned to that which is good, once again. The will, before it was an idol, is what we're talking about here. Uh, and I think that the human will may be the, the most prominent idol in all of the Western world right now. Uh, in fact, even in the church, to suggest that the will of each person isn't sovereign the way that only God should be understood to be sovereign is kind of blasphemous. And there are conferences about why that's not the case. Every year, the John 3.16 conference, as if John 3.16 has anything to say about this. Um, Christ has two wills. Remember we said this? He's not, uh, you know, I'm of two minds on this. I'm torn. Rather, the human and the divine will. The will is very much the center of my personality, your personality. Describe someone that you know without talking about their will. You can't, right? I mean, you could say... They, where they live, what they do for a living, even then you've probably touched on their will a little bit because they've chosen to do it. But mostly you're going to say, oh, they've got a great heart. They love to do this. They enjoy this. They spend a lot of their time. Our wills are really central to who we are. And so when we talk about renewing of the will, this is a renewing of the person. This is a being born again and being made into a new creation. Of all parts of the human and, and of the world, the will of man was the most fractured by the fall and is the most renewed in redemption. I think that's also one of the things that people, you were talking about enlightening versus like why do they seem, why do they think that you're in darkness if you've been born again? I think that's a huge part of it because I've, I've known people who, like, their main beef is, well, I wouldn't be my own person then. Right. Yeah, and what's the answer to that? For some reason, not your own person, because you're following this other person. Yeah, so, so the notion of, even on, like, movies and television, the, the yucks with Christians come from, everybody is kind of this brainwashed automaton, everyone's the same, and, and you've, you've traded in that which makes you you, because you've become a new creature with... A will that's realigned with God. Now, what, what's what's the answer to that? Do you think? I don't know. I think a lot of it is if you're in relationship with that person, just showing them how you've changed and how it's not for the worse. You know, um, and I think that over time, sometimes like friends who, like if you have a friend group that's not saved, they see that oh, this isn't just a phase. You know, this person's really living this, and they're they're happier, and they're and. You know, that's the kind of winsomeness that makes people ask a lot. Like, you know, okay, tell me about this. Um, so I think that's part of it. But I mean, I don't think you can just verbally convince somebody, I'm my own person, don't, don't worry. I, I would turn the tables and say, yeah. as people who are not freed from the shackles of sin, the, the very same few things motivate everyone. And people who would most loudly shout, no, 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 I'm a free spirit and I am a free thinker, look the most like, the, <laughs> to me, carbon copies of each other. Um, and and it's, it's you know, somebody who's caked in mud saying, no, 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 I'm clean. It's, it's somebody who's you know, two foot tall saying, no, I'm tall. Uh, and 
to have the, the shackles of sin, pride, self-worship, self-delusion removed, that is the true freedom, especially since it permits us to do what we were created to do, which is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And we don't all do that in the exact same way, like we are all the same person. No, God created us all to be different and to glorify Him and enjoy Him in our own unique way. And when we're saved, we're actually freed to do that. So, you know, if you take a mousetrap and, and say, well, this thing is boring looking and you bend the, the bar all weird and say, there, now it's very unique, you haven't made it more free. I mean, all it is, is it doesn't operate correctly anymore. And if you straighten it out, you haven't you've taken away its soul. It's, it's the same thing with the humans, only on a far more uh, complex scale. Um, we need to move quickly through this because we have like four minutes left and I don't think we're meeting again until fall. Um, Thomas Boston, 17th century Scottish preacher, spoke of a fourfold state of humans, of the human will. Uh, he said there was its state in Adam before the fall, its state in his descendants before regeneration, the state of the will in the regenerate, that's you and me, and lastly, its state in the glorified. So we have to remember that our will is actually still in progress. It's not perfectly realigned to the point where we never sin, we never fail, we never fall. Uh, Alexander White, who wrote the commentary on the catechism, wrote these wonderful words. The work of the Spirit in renewing the will and setting it free is secret, spiritual, and mysterious. And pointed back to John 3, where Jesus said, The wind blows where it lists, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And, of course, we can't talk about this topic without reading John 6, 44 and following. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's, I mean, either you're saying Jesus was confused... Or, the only way to be saved is for the Spirit to draw you. Uh, it's not on your shoulders. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. So, God cannot leave your free will alone and entirely intact as it was and still cause you to be born again. Because as a sinner, your will was not free. It was as chained up as it could possibly be by sin. Yes, you were free to do what you wanted, but what you wanted was very predictable because of the chains that were, the, the, the human will is always going to be bent toward self until it's freed by God. A rebellious will must be changed into a penitent will. That's when God grants repentance, like we read about uh, earlier in the book of Acts. And finally, persuades and enables us, by doing all these things, persuades and enables us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. That's the good news. The euangelion simply means good word, essentially. Uh, good, good, in fact, in, in the, uh, the Old English, gospel comes from God spell, which means God narrative, the God story. It's, it's a good news for us type story. Uh, and apart from God freeing our will, changing our will, it would be bad news. It would simply be 
you're in sin and ministry, misery, rather, you're in sin and misery and you don't see it. And that's the end. And you stay in sin and misery forever. Thank God he intervenes and by effectually calling us, makes us into new creations. I'm going to end with an old-timey sermon illustration about a guy named Thomas Doolittle. It couldn't be better. Thomas Doolittle, a godly minister of the 17th century, used to catechize his members, and especially the young people of his congregation, every Lord's Day. One Sabbath evening, after having received an answer in the words of the Assembly's Catechism to the question, what is effectual calling, and having explained it, he proposed that the question should be answered by changing the words us and our into me and my. Upon this proposal, a solemn silence followed. Many felt its vast importance, but none had courage to answer. At length, a young man rose up, and with every mark of a broken and contrite heart, by divine grace, was enabled to say, Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing me of my sin and misery, enlightening my mind in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing my will, he doth persuade and enable me to embrace Jesus Christ, freely offered to me in the gospel. The scene was truly affecting. The proposal of the question had commanded usual solemnity. The rising up of the young man had created high expectations, and the answer being accompanied with proof and unfeigned piety and modesty, the congregation was bathed in tears. This young man had been convinced by being catechized. And to his honor, Doolittle says, from being an ignorant and wicked youth, he had become an intelligent professor to God's glory and my much comfort. So this stuff, yes, is often uh, pedantic and very technical, but it has a great effect when we understand, a great effect, and is very affecting when we understand exactly what's being taught. And what's being taught here is that you were lost and you were hopeless. Jesus came and saved you, not because of anything you did, but because of his great love and mercy. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do, we do struggle with questions of our, our human will and your sovereign will and how they relate to each other. And Lord, we'll probably never understand it completely. Maybe not even in eternity we won't understand it completely. But Lord, we're thankful that you do. And we pray that we would always, by, by habit and by our, our natural response, uh, default to giving you glory and thanking you never pointing to our own will as the source of our salvation, never thinking of you as only having affected our eternal bliss, but having effected it by the death of Jesus and his resurrection, by the work of the Spirit in us, showing us our sin and misery, enlightening our hearts and minds, and, and giving us the ability and the desire, though very will, to accept the gift of salvation. We're so thankful for that gift and we're so thankful that you made us into the people who want that gift. And we give you glory for all of it. In your holy name we pray. Amen.